to know that. So, uh, that being said, I'm actually not going to be uh, preaching today. So, uh, I thought to myself, hey, some of the hardest passages in the Bible, I won't preach it. And so... Uh, that's not really what I thought. Um, what I really thought was we have Rand Hobegger, who's been going to our church for a number of years now, who has a lot of preaching experience he, and a lot of uh, ministry experience. And so uh, he works in the marketplace full time right now, but he used to work vocationally as a pastor in a variety of ways. And so uh, we had him preach a few months ago in our Colossian series, and he just killed it. So he passed the test so he can preach again. And so he's going to be preaching the text for us today. If you don't know Rand. He uh, is a former deacon of ours. He uh, helps, uh, he's one of our youth leaders and he leads an RC. And so we really love Rand. I'm very thankful that we have uh, another preacher here that can help. And so that, I, you know, one of my personal values is that I, this isn't the Anthony show or that this isn't the Anthony preaching show, that we would have multiple voices preaching because I see the text one way and that another preacher will see something that's also true from the text that I might miss. And so I think it's important to have multiple voices so that we can get all we can out of God's word on a Sunday morning. So will you guys welcome up Rand, who's going to be bringing the word this morning? That was generous, thank you. And yeah, like Anthony said, not an easy passage this morning. So I am looking forward to getting into the text with you, and we're going to get right into it here in just a moment. Um, I'm going to say this right up front. Like Anthony said, this is not an easy passage to preach or likely to listen to. In fact, when Anthony first texted me about this a couple months ago, um, his exact words were, how about October 2nd? The passage will be 2 Samuel 13 through 18, Absalom's Rebellion, which I think is a gross text if memory serves me right. Ha ha. Indeed, right? It, <laughs> not anymore. Yeah. So, but he was very gracious in giving me a heads up, and this was literally months ago. And one of the benefits of dealing with a very difficult text with that much notice is that you get to bounce thoughts and ideas about the text off of others. You get to study a lot. You get to read what other much wiser people have done with a text like this. And so he was very gracious in giving me a lot of advance notice on what is admittedly a difficult text. This kind of gross text, as Anthony describes it, describes the other gross text that immediately precedes it in 2 Samuel 11 through 12. And you heard a small portion of the very end of that passage that we studied last week. And that passage is critical context for the passage that we're looking at today. If you weren't here last Sunday, 2 Samuel 11 through 12 is crucial context for today's passage. So I'm going to review something really quickly here. Last week, we learned about David's most despicable sins. David had a lot of flaws, a lot of brokenness. And last week, we learned how he essentially abused his power to rape the wife of one of his most loyal soldiers. And when that soldier didn't cooperate with the cover-up plan for the pregnancy that resulted, he had that soldier murdered in the field of battle. Ugly, ugly episode in the life of David. And God sent a prophet, Nathan, to confront David about this sin, and he confronted David with an emotionally charged story that exposed the horrific nature of David's sin to him. And David saw what he had done, he confessed his sin, and he repented. But the fact is that sin has far-reaching consequences. And those far-reaching effects 
were laid out by the prophet Nathan to David in the passage that you just heard read a few moments ago. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, and really if you wanted to find a three-verse summary of the whole long passage that we're going to look at today, this is it, because all of these things get fulfilled in the next five or six chapters. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, Therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And chapters 13 through 18 describe in dramatic and often sordid detail exactly how those prophesied consequences just tore through the royal family of Israel over the next decade. And so this morning, my happy job is to take you through that passage. I'm not going to shy away from the ugliness that we're going to find in these chapters. And we're going to spend much of our time just walking through this tragic history of Israel's most famous royal family and letting the scriptures tell their story. Anthony gave that parental advisory warning. I'll reiterate it. If you're just walking in or you're just watching now, we're going to be dealing with sexual violence, with incest, with murder, with betrayal, with suicide, all within this scope of a few chapters. And it's not pretty. And I want you to know that in case what's coming for you parents, if you would prefer to handle these things differently with your kids, this is sort of the last warning until we get into it. But I promise that I'm not just going to fixate on the negative this morning. I'm not just going to focus on the awful things here for the next 30 minutes and then abruptly close in prayer. In all honesty, it might be longer than 30 minutes. But also, I'm not just going to focus on the negative. At the end of this message, we're going to get to genuine hope that all of the ugliness of this passage actually points us to and causes us to long for. And so hang on through all the ugly stuff. It's going to get better. And so here we go. Let's start in with chapter 13. I believe most of these passages are going to be up on screen. We begin in chapter 13, verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Put an asterisk next to love there. All right, we'll get to that. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. All right, we don't waste any time in getting into the awful brokenness that is going to plague David's family. His son Amnon, the passage here says love, and that's because in Hebrew there is really one word that gets used over and over again for almost any kind of love, whether selfish or selfless. Amnon, big air quotes, loves his sister he is nearly debilitated by incestuous lust for his own stepsister Tamar, the daughter of one of David's other wives. And he can't figure out how to legally or socially acceptably fulfill those desires. But his cousin and terrible friend Jonadab, as we're going to find out, has a plan. He feeds him this really twisted plan to get alone with Tamar. He's like, hey, Amnon, pretend to be sick 
and then get word to your father, the king, that you really want your sister to come and comfort you and make some food for you to help you recover and get better. That's Jonadab's plan, and it works. Verse 8, so Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Amnon, he's now alone with his stepsister, and he grabs a hold of her and shamelessly just blurts out, come lie with me, my sister. Tamar's horrified by this proposition. She adamantly and desperately refuses. She begs in verse 12, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. In just this short appeal, Tamar honorably appeals to decency, to cultural customs in that land, to pity, to the shame that she hopes that Amnon would be experiencing even offering a proposition like this. She even then tries to buy time by seeking to convince Amnon to ask the king for permission to marry her, his stepsister, which she knew was illegal under Israel's laws, but just the request might have bought her time to escape or to seek help. But verse 14 tells us what we could unfortunately already see coming. Amnon will not listen, he overpowers her, and he rapes her. And then verse 15, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. Skip to verse 18, so his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now, hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. All right, one thing that's not a surprise at all in this passage is that Amnon didn't actually love his sister. We're going to see a theme through this whole passage where people are described to love someone, and it turns out that their love is really just a selfish desire for themselves, a selfish desire for reputation, a selfless desire for the status quo. This was clearly twisted, ungodly, unholy desire. It was not love. And Amnon, as soon as he has assaulted his stepsister, his immediate shame over what he has done turns to utter hatred of Tamar, who is now the living, breathing evidence of his crime. He kicks Tamar out unceremoniously, and she publicly and very ceremonially broadcasts what she has suffered by putting ashes on her head, by crying out in the streets, by tearing apart the long robe that symbolized her very valuable virginity in that culture. Tamar's brother, Absalom, comes across her out in the streets, wailing about what has been done to her. And Absalom deduces what has happened, which tells us that Amnon had not kept a very good secret about his incestuous desire. Absalom asks her what has happened, figures it out, 
and then very, very callously tries to calm her down. Like, don't take this to heart because he's your brother, as if that somehow makes this better. And then, in what is maybe a small act of mercy, but is probably more of just a desire to protect the family reputation, he invites her to come and live quietly and shut away in his house, where Tamar apparently lives out her days in lonely depression and despondency. Verse 21. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But, and I'll make a note here, many of the ancient manuscripts, including the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Greek translation of the Old Testament, include this verse, which we don't find in our ESV. He would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, again, love, twisted, unrighteous love. He loved him since he was his firstborn. But Amnon spoke, Absalom spoke to, to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Okay, not surprising, Absalom seethes over what has been done to his sister. While he was callous in his response to her, he knows how unjust and how, how cruel this was, and he seethes in silent hatred of his stepbrother. But the real shocker here, at the close of this section, is David's reaction. David is the king. David is responsible for justice. David is Tamar's father. But his anger fails to outweigh this twisted love, this favoritism towards his firstborn son and the heir to the throne. And he does nothing. Absolutely nothing. And over and over again in these few verses at the beginning of chapter 13, the injustice against Tamar in every aspect of this account is infuriating. I have read over this passage more times than I can count over the last two months, and every time I read this, it just makes me angry. And I don't think it's an unrighteous anger. I think it is an anger that God shares, and we're going to see that played out through the events of the rest of this account. But before we go on to read about the continued tragedy that's set in motion by these events, let me pause here. This is the last that we hear of Tamar. She's raped by one stepbrother. She's silenced and hidden away by another brother. She is ignored as a victim by the civil authorities, which happens to be led by her own father, the king. She is utterly failed by everyone who should have protected her and pursued justice for her. And what grieves me is that I know that Tamar is not alone in this room. I know from my own relationships and just statistically speaking, that many of you have experienced similar traumas. Many of you, men, women, children, teenagers. This is far too common today, just as it was back then. I know that I personally need two hands to count the number of sexual abuse and assault victims just within my own close circle of family and close friends. This is horrifically common. And so I know that for some of you, this is very hard to hear because this describes in some way your own experience. And I know that in every case of those that I can count from my close circle, in every single case, the abuser has actually gone unpunished. And that may be your story as well. And even if your perpetrator was brought to justice, you know that the deep wounds you have suffered would not be healed by that justice. And so this morning, 
I want to take this pause to acknowledge suffering, to grieve with you who have been hurt in these ways, to lament the brokenness within our families, within our judicial systems, within our religious institutions that seem to hurt abuse victims and protect abusers often more than they help. Our God is a God of justice, and I believe such injustice makes him angry, and we should be angered by that as well and grieve for those who have experienced such trauma. And so if this account is painful, if this account triggers trauma from your own story, I would like to tell you, as Anthony already mentioned, that we do have people and resources here at Redemption to help and to care for you. You are welcome to talk to my wife, Lindsay. She's standing in the back today. You're welcome to find Kaylee Jensen, who's on staff. Talk to Anthony, talk to me, talk to Pastor Kyle, talk to any of us here at this church. We would love to be Jesus' ears to listen to your story, Jesus' eyes to truly see you, his hands, his mouth to help and to comfort in any way that we can. Regardless of your story, know that you, like Tamar, have infinite worth as a person who is imprinted with the very image of God. And you do not have to suffer in silence and shame and deep depression as Tamar did in this unjust culture. You are seen by God, and we value and love and care for you. Let's continue. Verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. Let's skip to verse 28. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his, fuel and his mule and fled. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. Absalom's hatred had a chance to grow for two years while his father did nothing, until he finally found an opportunity at this very public sheep-shearing celebration to gather the king's son together, sons together and then have Amnon killed. The king had completely abdicated his authority to punish Amnon's crime. And so Absalom took justice into his own hands and he murdered his, his brother in cold blood. Consequences finally fall on Amnon after two years. But they fall on him in a way that fulfills God's prophecy that violence will pervade David's house. The sword will never leave his house. It's happening. The consequences are falling on David's family now. And David grieves for his fallen firstborn son, ironically far more than he seemed to have grieved for what happened to Tamar. And Absalom, fearing how his father may react, because his father is not thinking clearly about any of this, Absalom flees the city. He flees out to a place called Geshur. Now, I'm going to summarize chapter 14. We have a lot to cover here this morning. And so chapter 14 describes Amnon's ex I mean, Absalom's exile and how he finally came back to be in the good graces of the king. In chapter 14, David starts the chapter deeply missing Absalom, but not missing him so much that he's willing to invite him back. 
And so Joab, David's general and friend, who we're going to hear more of in this passage, Joab convinces someone who's described as a wise woman, potentially a prophet, to come to David and tell him another emotionally charged story, similar to what Nathan had told David when Nathan confronted his sin. And that emotionally charged story does the trick. It convinces David of what is actually happening in his own heart. Quick side note here, notice that twice in three chapters, God has sent someone to tell an emotionally compelling story to one of his people to teach them something, to affect their heart, to change them. And I might suggest that that's often how God works. If you look at the life of Jesus and his ministry, he so often changed hearts and got people to pay attention to the truth of God's word. How? By telling emotionally compelling stories that we call parables. This is how God works. And so to take a meta moment here, let's get above the passage and recognize that God is doing the same thing this morning. This is an incredibly emotionally compelling, charged story that gets us angry. It gets us worked up. Could it be that the reason God wants us to hear this story this morning is because he wants to expose something within us? All right, that's the meta moment. Keep that in mind as we continue on through this passage. Let's get back down into the story. This woman tells the story. David is compelled. He is convicted of how he is treating Absalom. But he's only convicted a little bit because he has Joab go and bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. But he's apparently still hurt or angry. We're not quite sure what. But he won't actually see Absalom. He's protected the family image by bringing his now next heir to the throne back to Jerusalem. He's back in the city with the king, but he won't see him. And Absalom just continues to seethe in his anger against his father. His anger just continues to grow until he finally takes some pretty desperate actions to get Joab's attention again. And Joab goes to David and is like, man, David, you have got to see your son. It has been years. And David finally breaks and he forgives Absalom and he invites him back to the throne room, kisses his hand and forgives him. But as seems to be par for the course for this passage, the story isn't pretty. It's too late. Absalom's bitterness and his hatred for his father are too strong. All of the hurt that he's experienced is too deep. And Absalom begins plotting a political coup. He begins plotting to take over the throne. He is convinced that David is not fit to be king. And frankly, he's probably right. But he goes about this in all the wrong ways. And we start to see that in chapter 15. Chapter 15 describes Absalom's rather famous rebellion. It's a brilliant political coup that happens here. Absalom begins in chapter 15 by going and standing at the gate where people would come to the palace with legal concerns to bring before the king. David was the judge. They didn't have judges anymore. David was the king. He was responsible for all judicial decisions. And Absalom would go and intercept people who were coming to David and say, oh man, it's too bad that the king doesn't care about justice, that he hasn't appointed anybody to actually take care of your concerns. Wouldn't it be great if I were the one who could take care of all of your judicial concerns, if I could be king? And he does this for four years. For four years, he manipulates anybody coming to Jerusalem with a legal concern to believe that Absalom would be a better judge and better king than David. And it works. 
For four years, he does this right under the nose of David, who continues to just apparently not be present in his kingly duties. And at the end of four years, Absalom makes his move. He goes down to Hebron, Hebron, supposedly to offer sacrifices, but he's put a plan in place to take over the throne when he goes to Hebron. We read in chapter 15, verse 10, Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. All right. Absalom's plan here is ingenious, but the real coup is him getting Ahithophel. He got David's most trusted friend and counselor, a man who the scriptures say was seen as speaking the very words of God. He was one of the wisest men in Israel. Ahithophel betrays David and joins Absalom. Now the whole country would see that even David's most loyal advisor and wisest person in the kingdom had lost confidence in the king. And the jig is up for David. This once mighty King David knows that the nation has now completely turned on him in favor of his own son. God's prophecy continues to come true. And so David and thousands of his troops flee overnight from Jerusalem when they learn that Absalom is coming to town to take over the throne. But David's still a savvy statesman. David still knows what's up here in the kingdom. And so he leaves behind Another well-known advisor, Hushai, leaves him behind as a two-way spy. Hushai is supposed to be a foil to Ahithophel. David knows how strong Ahithophel's counsel is going to be, so David gets Hushai to stay in Jerusalem and actually convince Absalom that he too has switched sides, even though he hasn't, and he's still reporting back to David. And it's a really good thing that David has a spy, Another man, an inside man there in Jerusalem, because Ahithophel is ruthless in his counsel to speedily help Absalom take over the throne. In trying to convince Absalom on how to effectively get an iron grip on the throne he is seizing, Ahithophel's first tactic is frankly disgusting. This is probably one of the most R-rated passages in this section of Scripture. His tactic directly fulfills Nathan's prophecy to David that someone would publicly violate David's wives like David had violated Uriah's. Chapter 16, verse 21. Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. The language here is relatively subdued. But Absalom's rooftop display of sexual prowess over his father's harem is gratuitous. It is violent in its extreme. These were women who were left behind by David to take care of the house. They had, they had duties as concubines Beyond sexual duties, they had duties to care for the property, and these were basically slaves who had absolutely no agency in what was done to them. And Amnon? 
probably on the same rooftop that David had first seen Bathsheba from, Amnon commits a horrible crime. This son who was so angry over his brother's rape now brazenly commits mass rape against his father's slaves. It's awful. Absalom has completely turned at this point. And Ahithophel doesn't stop there with the way he's counseling Absalom. He then counsels Absalom to immediately let him take troops to hunt down David overnight and assassinate him, just David, in a quick targeted strike. It's a really brilliant tactical plan. It would have probably taken David out of the picture. It would have solidified Israel's sense that David couldn't defend himself. And now all of their loyalty would have shifted to Absalom. It was a great plan. But God moves Hushai to step in in chapter 17. And I'm going to summarize Hushai's argument here. He basically argues, Ahithophel, Absalom, are you crazy? David is a shrewd warrior. He's a man of war who right now is like a trapped bear. You really think you're going to sneak up on him and kill him? So he puts down Ahithophel's plan, and he provides his own plan. And his plan is all-out, full-scale war. Absalom, get an army together, go out in the field, defeat David's army fair and square in the field of battle. And God intervenes to sway Absalom's decision away from what truly was an ingenious plan by Ahithophel. Verse 14 of chapter 17, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So Absalom is convinced by this new plan. He prepares his army for battle, and he clearly rejects the counsel of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel finally feels the full weight of the shame of his betrayal of his friend and the treason against his king. And verse 23 gives us this heart-wrenching side note that wraps up Ahithophel's story. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And then in chapter 18, Absalom goes to war against his father David. The preparations for battle are happening. David is getting his troops ready for battle. He's not going into battle this time at the council of his own generals who don't want him to be a target. And so he gives some very explicit instructions to his leading generals, including Joab, his most trusted advisor and general at this point. And he says in chapter 18, verse 5, one explicit command to his armies through his generals, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. This is kind of stunning to me. Even through all the humiliation of his exile, David still genuinely loves his treasonous son and wants to show him mercy. This is different than what we saw before. For perhaps the first time in all of these chapters, after failing to love Tamar, failing to truly love Amnon, failing to love Absalom earlier, now we see David genuinely and selflessly loving his child. How do we know it's selfless? Because preserving Absalom will only bring more pain and heartache. This is a young man who clearly has it out for his father. David has nothing to gain by keeping Absalom alive. But this time, 
He selflessly loves him and he asks his generals, not for Absalom's sake, who doesn't deserve it, but just for my sake, please be merciful to him. And everybody hears it. Those are the commands they go out into battle with. You can kill everybody else. Don't kill Absalom. And so the battle begins. This is where you hear the theme music of the orcs marching to Minas Tirith. This is a massive battle, and you're going to find out just from the numbers of the casualties here, this is all-out war. The full armies of Israel who have aligned themselves to Absalom against the mighty men of David, probably a much smaller army, but we know from Israel's history an incredibly powerful and tactical force. Verse 8, the army goes out in the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. It's a massacre. And David's forces have Absalom and his few remaining followers on the run, and Absalom takes off. He's done. He's, going to, he, he's not even going to surrender. He's just going to flee for his life because he assumes that David's going to kill him. That's what he deserves. Now, I actually skipped over a verse earlier in this passage that's a really interesting description that seems out of place at the time. But earlier in the passage, the author describes Absalom as an incredibly handsome man with long, heavy locks of hair that weighed up to two pounds when he would cut it every year. This guy had an enormous, lush head of hair. Why in the world would the author have mentioned that? Hashtag foreshadowing. Chapter 18, verse 9. In, it would have been comic except for what happens. It's horrible. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Absalom, who's been trying to get a throne, get a crown, gets a crown of oak instead. He's hanging there, completely helpless, can't get himself down because his lush head of hair that he was so proud of now has him stuck. And word makes it to the crafty general Joab. And Joab doesn't care about the objections of his troops who had heard David's clear order to protect Absalom. Joab is a pragmatist. Joab knows that Absalom, if he's preserved, is just going to cause more trouble. And so he literally says to one of his troops who is saying, please don't do this. The king said not to. He says, I don't have time for this. And he goes to Absalom and he takes three javelins in his hand. Javelins weren't the long kind of javelins that we have today. These were probably short spears. He takes three javelins in his hand and he thrusts them through the heart of helpless Absalom while he's still alive in the oak. In verse 14. And then Joab has dead Absalom taken down, thrown into a pit, covered with a pile of rocks, completely unceremoniously buried, and then tries to soften the blow of the news that makes it back to David. But there's no softening this news. David gets the full story. And in chapter 18, verse 33, we read David's reaction. Who for the, David, for the third time in a decade, has lost a beloved son. And in verse 33, the author records, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David is heartbroken. And his heart-rending regret-soaked lament 
ends our passage today. This is the note we end on. So what are we supposed to learn from these six chapters of epic, gut-wrenching tragedy? I'm going to suggest two primary lessons for us. One of them very sobering, one of them hopefully very hopeful. The first is that sin comes full circle. This could really be the title of this message. David's sin comes full circle. Sin has terrible consequences. And the principle that we find illustrated throughout the Bible, and especially in the New Testament described as sowing and reaping, is very painfully true here throughout this story. Look at how this plays out. David had committed horrendous crimes against Bathsheba and Uriah. And God promised that the sword would never leave David's house. And look at all the violence, all the bloodshed we just witnessed in these five chapters. God promised that treachery would arrive within David's house. And David nearly loses the throne to a treacherous son. God promised that David's sexual sin would come back on his own family in public, public humiliating ways. And we saw that in kind of nauseating detail this morning. And it's not just David's sin that comes full circle over and over again. Amnon's violent rape brings about his own violent murder. Absalom's murder and rape and treason bring his own humiliating death. Ahithophel's betrayal, like Judas a thousand years later, betraying Jesus. His betrayal drives him to despair and ultimately to suicide. And notice that in none of these crimes does justice actually come through normal civil means. Over and over again, these chapters make the point to us that even when earthly justice fails, God's justice doesn't. God is behind the scenes when all of the earthly structures that are supposed to provide justice fail. God is still working justice for his own purposes and through his own means. And that should be sobering to us. It should be sobering because all of us have sinned. It should be sobering because some of us have committed similar atrocities as Amnon or Absalom or David that we've read about here today. And as Samuel told King Saul when he sinned years before, Samuel said, be sure your sin will find you out. It's interesting. He doesn't say, be sure God will find your sin out. God knows it. But he actually says, be sure your sin will find you out. Sin is its own best detective. Sin comes back on those who commit it. Sin comes full circle. And especially if any of you think that you have seemingly gotten away with the kinds of abuse or assault or violence that we have read about in today's passage, I want to urge you this morning to repent. To repent before God, trusting that he will forgive you because Jesus has taken that sin on himself and he will give you mercy, he will forgive you. But repent also in the civil or public ways that you need to. If you have committed these kinds of crimes and your victims have gone and lived desolate lives, like we read about here, it is my responsibility to urge you to deal with the earthly consequences as well. Maybe there are some of you who need to literally turn yourself in. Get the help that you need from the structures that God has put in place over our society and deal with the consequences of your sin. I can assure you that repentance and even legal punishment in this life is better 
than getting away with it. Because I think if you asked Amnon and Absalom 3,000 years since they died, if you asked them if they felt like they got away with anything, the answer wouldn't be yes. They got away with nothing and have not been getting away with it for 3,000 years. This is a sobering passage for us. I mentioned before that God uses emotionally compelling stories to expose sin, to cause our hearts to change. Perhaps there are some of you who need to recognize your own sin this morning and repent and deal with the consequences and make things right with God and with those you have hurt. And then I will say again, for victims of these kinds of crimes that so often see so little earthly justice, know that God will bring justice, that sin will come full circle, if not in this life, in eternity. God, a righteous judge, the righteous judge, has not forgotten you. Sin always comes full circle. That's the really sobering lesson that we learn here. But I promise that we would end with hope. And let's get into that. Sin shows our need for someone better. And there's a lot of different someones that are illustrated in this passage that we need better in our lives and in our community and in our church and in our families. First, sin shows our need for a better family than we've read about this morning. As we read of David's abject failure as a father and we consider the failures of our own parents, and for those of us who are parents, we consider our own failures, it should cause us to yearn for and run to God who is the perfect father, who never fails us, who accepts and loves wayward and often hurting children. And in contrast to the brothers that we read about today, Amnon, Absalom, who so despicably failed their sister and failed each other, the gospel reminds us that we have a perfect, loyal, and caring brother in Jesus. We are joint heirs with him. We are brothers in God's family with Jesus, and he far from ever hurting us. He rescues us and he defends us. We have a better father. We have a better brother. We have a better family in the family of God than we have read about this morning. May our hearts yearn for that. But sin also shows us our need for better friends and better counselors. I read about these miserable, conniving, treasonous friends like Jonadab, Ahithophel, Joab, terrible friends in these chapters. And it makes me really grateful for the good friends that God has put into my life, and I hope it does that for you as well. But even more than that, I hope that this passage and all that it shows of the worst kinds of counselors points you to the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus has given us to be our counselor, to be our friend, to guide us into all truth concerning Jesus and the gospel. We have a friend who will never fail us. He's never selfish. He's never backstabbing. He is an unfailingly faithful friend. And finally this morning, and I'll close with this, sin shows our need for a better king. This has been the point of this entire teaching series, if you haven't caught it yet. Israel had cried out, hey, we want a king. And look what they got. In David, maybe the best king they had, they got a man who raped, who murdered, who turned a blind eye to injustice. Absalom said, hey, I can do better than David, and then he was worse for the few days that he had ruling over Israel. Earthly rulers haven't gotten any better since then, right? We still want and need a better king. 
and we have one. Far from a king who commits violent crimes and ignores justice, Jesus bears responsibility for the worst of our crimes. He willingly allows himself to be brutally murdered. He takes the full brunt of divine justice on himself on the cross to rescue wayward, rebellious, treasonous Absaloms like you and me. He says, spare them for my sake. That's the king that we have. We don't deserve it, but we have a king who rescues us anyway. We're the ones in our sin who naturally try to make ourselves king. We try to usurp God's rule. We try to fight against his kingdom. That's who we naturally are in our sin. And Jesus, the king, graciously rescues us and accepts us anyway. Jesus rules with both mercy for the sinner and justice for the oppressed. We want a king, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the passage that we've read this morning. As difficult as it has been, we thank you that it convicts of sin and that it makes us yearn, yearn for you as our Father, yearn for Jesus our brother, yearn for the Holy Spirit our counselor, yearn for the better King we have in Christ. And so we thank you for this and ask that you would now work to change our hearts to be more like King Jesus. In his name, amen.